0: Hello, friends in Christ. It's good to have this opportunity to talk with you once again. Haven't we come a long way in the study of this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church? It seems that one thing that comes across loud and clear is that the church often struggles through hard times, and it doesn't seem to matter what age or what country. There's always conflict to contend with. It reminds me of the rock tumbler my daughter once had. The rough rocks were placed in the tumbler and it was turned on, and the rocks tumbled against one another over and over, and they bumped against each other until it, the tumbler stopped. Then when, when the rocks were removed, it was apparent they'd been transformed by this process into beautiful, smooth stones. We, as we sojourn together, we're being transformed into a thing of beauty, by contending with conflict together in Christ. Today we explore how that happens and why it happens as Paul talks about who he was before and who he is now in Christ. And here's Paul's words I'm reading from Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 11. I once thought these things were valuable but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. The last time I talked with you, I told you about a video series that I would watched again and again called The Chosen. In the first episode, Mary Magdalene meets Jesus. She changes from a demon-possessed woman to a woman who is at peace. When a Pharisee who was well acquainted with the demon-possessed Mary sees her in the marketplace later, he asks her what happened. He knows that she has changed, and she says that a man whose name she doesn't even know healed her. She says, quote, I was one way, and now I am completely different, and the thing that happened in between was him. This was Paul's story, too. He was one way, and now he is completely different. How is he different? In two ways. One, his sense of value has changed. And secondly, his identity has changed. Let's explore first how his sense of value has changed. He writes this in Philippians 3, verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now consider them worthless because of what Christ has done because of what Christ has done. On Monday nights, I eagerly look forward to watching the Antiques Road Show on PBS. I have watched this show for years, practically since it began on PBS. And I love to see the wonderful treasures that people have in their homes and bring to the appraisers seeking to know their value. Some people are greatly disappointed when they're told that their precious family heirloom may have tremendous sentimental value but little monetary value but some like the guy that had an old indian blanket that hung on the back of his chair discover that it has great historical significance and the appraiser sets the value very high indeed and he told him you have a national treasure sir and it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars i am in awe However, many times I've watched when the appraiser says an object is worth thousands of dollars, and I think, really? But who would want that? You see, unless someone wants it, it's worth nothing. And this is where the concept of value comes into play. The value depends on the desire of the beholder. Paul began our passage today talking about this very thing. He said, I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. What did Paul think was valuable? The same thing those he mentions in verse 2 think is valuable. The law Paul is being criticized by these people who are telling the Gentiles in the church that Christ is not enough, that they must be circumcised and observe the ceremonial feasts in order to realize their salvation. Oh, and as well, believe in Christ. And Paul has just told them that that understanding builds a false foundation in their lives, a foundation of sand. They're not building on the rock of Christ. It leads... To a foundation of confidence in something other than the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so it's probably through gritted teeth that Paul lists his own credentials. I say gritted teeth because I know he doesn't value these credentials, and he only goes there as a way to explain that if they think the credentials of the Judaizers qualifies them to be listened to and respected well. His credentials would put him in an even greater position of respect. And if it was true that his credentials made him worthy of God's forgiveness and mercy, then he was more worthy than the Judaizers. And so, well, he lists the accomplishments and he also reveals the position given him through his birth that he formerly claimed as his ticket to heaven and where he had, had once placed his confidence. And here's some of the things on that list. He was circumcised at eight days old, so he's circumcised. He was a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. Doesn't that remind you of Harry Potter? Paul was no mud blood, right? <laughs> he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he was a real Hebrew. He was a member of the Pharisees, and he possessed the righteousness that comes strictly from obeying the law. At all of this, he once highly valued. And it's this sort of thing that his opponents credit to themselves in their attempt to get the Gentiles to listen to and follow them, but not Paul. Paul writes telling the Philippian believers that these credentials are absolutely worthless in his estimation. They have no value. Verse 8 yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Have you ever seen a scale that has two plates on either side it looks like the kind that lady justice holds you know lady justice she she has a blindfold on a statue i'm sure you've seen a statue or a picture of her and she holds a scale well let's say paul has one of those and on one side he places all of his credentials and on the other side he places christ and he sees that the side that holds Christ goes all the way down, showing great substance and worth. And the credential side, it goes all the way up, displaying its lack of weight and value. Those credentials are fluff in comparison to Christ. Christ is worth far more. In fact, he's everything. He is Paul's pearl of great, This is mentioned by Jesus in a parable uh, that was recorded in Matthew 13, 45 and 46. A merchant was on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Or the one that Jesus told that's recorded in Matthew 13:44. A man discovered a treasure hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Knowing Jesus is the treasure Paul found, and he gave up everything in order to have him. My friend and neighbor, Rosaria Butterfield, tells a story about being at church after her conversion to Christ. She went around asking the people at her church, what did they have to give up to be there? Because she assumed that everyone there had to give up something to follow Christ, that everyone had experienced a sacrificial cost, because Rosaria lost everything to have Christ. She lost her job as head of women's studies at Syracuse University in New York. She lost her home. She lost her partner. But not her dog. She kept her dog, Murphy. (laughs) Knowing Christ was worth much, much more to her. He was and is her greatest treasure. Nothing, nothing compares. Well, how could Paul give up so much to have Christ? Give up his reputation his prestige, his position, how could he call that worthless? Because Christ made Paul completely different. It happened on the Damascus Road where Paul was traveling to go zealously persecute the Christians. It's a story that I I hope one one day, if you haven't already, you'll read all of it. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 9, but I'll read you a little bit. Verse 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they didn't see anyone. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there, blind, for three days, and did not eat or drink. So Paul is made someone new because he encounters the living Christ, Jesus. He was one way, but now he's completely different. And he says in verse 9, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. No, rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith in Christ. It's as as though Paul once planned to stand before the throne of God and list these credentials as his defense when he accounted for his life. But now he abandons that list and he turns to Christ and he says he is in Christ. Paul is wrapped in Christ's robe of righteousness, not a righteousness of his own, not that worthless list of credentials but the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When God looks at Paul, he sees his own son, Jesus. That, my friends, is confidence. And the new Paul has a new identity and new desires. In verse 10 of Philippians 3, he says, My new desires, his new desires are these. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ The Greek word for know that Paul uses here is ginosko. This word means far more than intellectual or theological knowledge. He's talking about having experiential knowledge of Christ, about knowing Jesus personally. We can know all about someone. We can read their biography or dig up info on our quest to learn about them, but never meet them. Never talk to them. Never really know them. And that all changes when they move into the neighborhood of your life. When you see them and you talk with them and encounter them daily and even more when you identify with them. And this is what Paul means when he says he wants to know Christ. As I was searching Rosaria's book, looking for the story of her church experience when she'd gone around asking folks what they gave up to be there, I came across this paragraph where she talks about joining her church. My husband had reminded me that there can be no resurrection without there first being a death. And Rosaria discusses this this concept as she writes of making her profession of faith before the congregation. She has asked seven questions, making seven vows. I want to read just a few of these, because along with these vows, she writes of her initial inner turmoil. And so I'm going to read three of them to you. Here's the first one. So she says the vows. of membership. The first one is, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and life? And she resp- in her mind, or as she would have been thinking about these coming to faith, she contrasts this with her her old life. And she said, my rule of faith and life had been my own intellect as a document wholly produced through oral history, I had no faith in the Bible as true or accurate. Indeed, as a scholar, I wouldn't even have trusted a chocolate chip cookie recipe passed down through oral history. And here I was putting my life on the line for a document produced by something as intellectually flimsy as oral history. Only the seriously anti-intellectual would do this. And what about the ontological fallacy inherent in using the Bible to prop up God while simultaneously using God to prop up the Bible? How could a committed postmodernist like me believe that the gospel is true? And so she wrestled. Question two. Do you believe in the one living and true God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as revealed in the scriptures? And her wrestling and her went like this: I had believed that God was an imperialist social construct, invented to soothe the consciousness of the intellectually infirm. Friedrich Nietzsche was kinder than I in his assessment that God is dead. Question three: Do you repent of your sin, confess your guilt and helplessness as a sinner against God? Profess Jesus Christ, Son of God, as your Savior and Lord, and dedicate yourself to his service. Do you promise that you will endeavor to forsake all sin and to conform your life to his teaching and example? And as she struggled, she had thought, Repent? Sin? Guilt? Helplessness? These were once anathema to my character and life. After all, I had given speeches to gathering crowds at gay pride marches, profess Christ as my Savior and Lord, the very name of Jesus I had once hated, deeply, and the only time his name was uttered from my mouth was in cursing something. And it goes on. Questions four, five, six, seven. And... um. She was, as, as you heard, she was deeply rooted in the gay community yeah. prior to her conversion. She identified with that community strongly. I think that's why her profession of faith shows us her new life so clearly. She was one way, and now she is completely different. But it was at great cost and great loss, but also even greater gain. And this is how she describes it. She writes, in July 1999, I made my profession of faith before God, before the elders of my church at one meeting, and before my church congregation during a worship service. Ken Smith had taught me that I was not joining a church, but rather was making a covenant with God and with a church body as I stood before the congregation to make this profession of faith. I felt the assault on my disloyalty, to the gay community as powerfully as I did my loyalty to Christ. Indeed, I would barely speak. I could barely speak the I do. Pastor Kim took my uncontrolled shaking as consent, and the rest of the congregation took me on faith. I still remember the trauma in my body when I hear our membership vows or watch someone stand before the congregation for the purpose of baptism or church membership. Each Lord's Supper made me experience my traitorship to my gay friends and to the person I once was. It took me three months after committing my life to Christ to consent to these vows because I was afraid to move too far away from my life as I had known it. A chapter of my life had just closed, but I had no idea at the time how severely I would feel its closure. Consenting to these vows meant simply that there was no going back. Once I had said these vows with my lips and held them in my heart, therein truly lay my treason from the gay community. I felt like I lived in some liminal, invisible space with no history and no sense of future. I felt like a vampire, possessing no reflection in mirrors. I realize now that this is what it means to be washed clean to be truly made new again. The past really is gone. The shadow of what was remains, but the substance is truly taken away. The Apostle Paul explains it this way, quote, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Unquote. This forgetting was a painful process, like grief. The cost of relief is the you that you used to be. Surviving means sacrificing something of you. From death to life, this is the gift of Christ to us. This is the power of his resurrection. Even now, we are being raised to new life in Christ. And Paul identified strongly with the Jewish religious community. He was moving up in power and influence in that community when Jesus knocked him down and got his attention. Here is how he's described in Acts 9 by Ananias. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him How much he must suffer for my name. So Paul experiences the power of Jesus' resurrection, raised from death to new life in Christ. All that zeal to persecute the church has now become zeal to preach Christ. And he wants to identify fully with Christ. He wants to experience the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, to reach out his hand in acceptance agreement and trust he wants to cross the finish line and experience the resurrection from the dead but sisters following Christ is not for the faint of heart it's radical it means sacrifice and it's painful if there is anything in your life that you value more than knowing Christ it's your master In talking about money, Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. However, this truth applies to everything in our lives. You must decide. Following Christ means transformation. It means gaining a new sense of value and identifying fully with Christ. It means struggle as we take up our cross daily to follow him, and swallowing hard as we count the cost of our discipleship. It means grieving death to our old life as we anticipate the experience of being born again to our new. It means admitting when we want to take just one day off from the command that we die to ourselves. But this is it. This is it. Have you ever crossed a finish line? You're going to cross one. You're going to cross the most important one of your life because you are attaining it in Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. His joy is our joy. Let's pray. Father God, Pull us into your life fully and completely. And if there are things that we value more than you, please help us to let them go. In your name we ask. Amen.